The story I'm about to tell you encompasses every extreme of the human ability to survive. And all of it's true. All of it really happened. Mental health strained to the point of near insanity, emotional turmoil, loneliness, hunger, hopelessness, danger, and all in one of the most inhospitable places on earth. Imagine being lost in a place so remote, so cold and unmapped that no human being could ever find you, understanding that not a soul on the planet knew where you were and assumed looking for you was futile because there's no way anyone could survive, ever, in the situation you found yourself in. Imagine knowing that if you died there, floating on a piece of ice at the bottom of the world, your ship crushed, your supplies dwindling, that no one would ever know your story. But we do know. This is the story of the last expedition of Antarctic explorer Ernest Shackleton and the 27 men that accompanied him on the journey that they believed would make them famous. Because they believed they were going to be the first human beings ever to cross the continent of Antarctica on foot. But everything that could go wrong went wrong. And they are famous now, but not because they accomplished their ultimate goal. They're famous because they didn't. And this is their story. Now let's go back to 1914, with the world just past the brink of a new century and creeping up on the biggest war it had ever seen. And let's hear their tale. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. County Kildare, Ireland is easily one of the most beautiful places on earth. The foothills of the Wicklow Mountains border it on the east, the Liffey and the Boyne flow through the landscape dotted with castles and ancient standing stones, Eucolic farms stretch out everywhere and have for centuries, millennia even, and you can't beat the breakfasts. And on February 15th, 1874, it became the birthplace of Ernest Henry Shackleton, second of ten children born to Anglo-Irish parents. His father was a doctor and wanted his son to follow in his footsteps, but Shackleton had the adventure bug and the travel bug and joined the Navy instead at age 16. His father wasn't rich enough to buy him a commission, so he had to prove himself and work his own way up the ranks. The Navy suited him well, and so he did well, and by the age of 22, was already a certified master mariner. At 22, I was working in coffee shops and changing my major every six seconds, but different times. His family motto was Fortitudine Winkimus, by Endurance We Conquer, which is starkly appropriate. I love when life foreshadows itself. At 27, he joined the now-famous Robert Falcon Scott on the British National Antarctic Expedition of 1901 on the ship Discovery. On this journey, Scott made it 300 miles, or 480 kilometers, further south than anyone else ever had, putting him a mere 480 miles, or 772 kilometers, from the South Pole. Scott was famous when he came home. 
It wasn't as glorious a journey for Shackleton, though. He had to come home early due to illness brought on by scurvy and a lack of food. After that, he married Emily Dorman in 1904, and they had three children together, though Shackleton would prove not to be that great at ever being home. Shackleton, after heading home early on Scott's expedition, became a journalist for a while and was elected secretary of the Scottish Royal Geographical Society. He even ran for a seat in Parliament, but lost in 1906. He's described as being impetuous and seems to be the kind of person that isn't quite sure what he wants to do. But he was charismatic and people were naturally drawn to him, which, along with his determination, is part of why he seemed able to find himself in leadership positions often. His brother, Frank Shackleton, was said to have many of the same characteristics and worked his way through life as a con man. He couldn't have been that great of one, though, because he was arrested several times and did jail time. In 1910, he was 85,000 pounds in debt. That's nine and a half million pounds today. In U.S. dollars, that'd be over 11 and a half million. And he was a major suspect in the theft of the Irish crown jewels, although they never proved he was involved. Ernest Shackleton definitely shared some of the same characteristics as his brother, and we can see during the expedition how Shackleton successfully manipulated situations to boost morale, keep his crew loyal, and use the personalities of others to create the most beneficial circumstances. He didn't always make the best decisions, but he was a successful leader in many ways. If he hadn't been, this story would have ended much more tragically than it already does. He didn't seem to fit in anywhere in society, at least not traditionally. He wasn't rich enough to enjoy a life of leisure, and he was too restless to stay put in any particular profession for too long. I think a lot of us can relate to that. He tried a ton of get-rich-quick schemes and investments, none of which panned out. He tried manufacturing cigarettes, mining in Bulgaria, investing in a railway that would go from Russia to the Far East, a fleet of taxi cabs, a whaling factory, gross, and my favorite, just straight up digging for buried treasure. He made no money. He wanted adventure, and he wanted to do something great and memorable, and he clearly believed he couldn't find that for himself sitting at a desk. Another thing I think a lot of us can relate to. So, in 1908, he led his own expedition to the Antarctic on the ship Nimrod, which is a terrible name. He was aiming to lead the first expedition that would reach the geographical and magnetic South Poles. His group split into two parties to do this. The southern party, which included Shackleton, were gunning for the geographical South Pole, and the northern party for the magnetic. And in case you need a refresher, like I did, the geographical South Pole is the point directly opposite the geographical North Pole, and is at the southern axis of the Earth's rotation. It's at 90 degrees south, which is literally as far down as you can go. The ice over it actually moves about 30 feet, or roughly 10 meters, every single year, and the U.S. Geographical Survey has to recalculate its spot every summer season. The magnetic South Pole is the spot where a magnetized compass will point if you use it in the Southern Hemisphere. To make things even more confusing, this spot moves too, and is about 500 miles, or a little over 800 kilometers, away from where it was in Shackleton's day. 
By the way, there's also a geomagnetic south pole, and a pole of inaccessibility, and a ceremonial pole, and everyone still seems to be a little bit confused about a lot of it. Which surprised me, because I thought we had that all figured out already. If you google this stuff about poles and don't have a PhD in geomagnetism, it's confusing. It made my brain cry a little bit. So a year into the journey, Shackleton and his southern party came closer than anyone else had to the geographical south pole, before being forced to turn back a mere 97 and a half miles, or 157 kilometers, from the goal. This record would hold for three more years. His northern party did supposedly, and I know this is a podcast, so I'm doing air quotes, became the first to the magnetic south pole, but there is some speculation as to whether they actually planted the Union Jack in the right spot. But we have no way of knowing for sure, so Shackleton's team is usually credited with the discovery, followed by a short disclaimer just in case. On that trip, his team was the first to climb Mount Erebus, the second largest volcano on the continent, at 3,794 meters, or 12,448 feet. That's about 415 adult brontosauruses. Or brontosauri. I googled it, and both terms seem to be correct. They also made a bunch of scientific discoveries, including the Beardmore Glacier, and they were the first people to see and travel on the southern polar plateau. Shackleton was knighted for all of this when he got back home. I wondered while doing this research why Scott and Shackleton didn't travel together after their first adventure. For his Nimrod expedition, Shackleton intended to use the area where Scott's Discovery expedition had been based as a launching point, but was pressured by Scott not to, as Scott claimed this was his own research zone. So maybe there was a clashing of egos here, both men wanting to lead the expedition that would make them the most famous Antarctic explorer of all time. Both were ravenously eager to make history, both would find themselves vying for leadership positions, and both would make several expeditions to Antarctica, and both, though in vastly different ways, would eventually die there. Or thereabouts. At this point, Robert Scott was really determined to be the first person to reach the South Pole. Many people were, and there was a worldwide scramble of explorers in the Antarctic race, all aiming to get there first. And after years of trying to raise funds to do so, Scott finally set out for the Antarctic again in 1910, this time without Shackleton. Robert Perry was celebrated as the leader of the first successful expedition to the North Pole a year earlier in 1909. Today, many think this is a controversial claim, but again, we'll never truly know. Perry was an American, and the British were itching to have one of their own reach the South Pole first. And Scott would finally make it to the South Pole this time. He'd get there half-starved, crippled by frostbite and snow blindness, and with only five of his men left alive. Just in time to see that Norway's Roald Amundsen had beaten him there by 34 days. 34 days. Devastated, Scott began the trek back to England. Only he'd never make it. He and the rest of his party would die of starvation and exposure before ever seeing home again. They died only 20 kilometers, that's 11 miles, away from a prearranged food supply depot. And they knew it was there as they lay dying, they just couldn't get to it. One of the most heart-wrenching stories of Scott's expedition was that of Lawrence Oates. On their way back from the pole, Scott wrote in his journal that Oates' feet were severely frostbitten, and that, quote, 
The poor soldier is very nearly done. But Oates kept going because there was literally no other choice but to go or die. Eleven days later, he asked his companions to leave him in his sleeping bag and continue on without him. This would have been a death sentence, and the others just couldn't bring themselves to leave him there, even though helping him meant they were slowed down to an extremely dangerous pace, especially since their food was nearly gone. Oates knew he was slowing the rest of them down, that they were wasting their rations on a doomed man, and that he would be the death of all of them. After making it a few more miles, that night he went to sleep just hoping not to wake up again. But he did. So the next day, he politely and decidedly turned to his friends and said, quote, I am just going outside and maybe some time. He wandered out into the white nothingness of a blizzard and never came back, sacrificing his life for his friends. They suspected what he was doing, but he couldn't be persuaded to stay inside, and their suspicions were confirmed when they saw he'd left his boots behind. His feet had become so painful that putting his boots on proved to be too excruciating, so he wandered out to his death in his socks. Scott wrote in his journal that was found later, We knew poor Oates was walking to his death, but though we tried to dissuade him, we knew it was the act of a brave man and an English gentleman. We all hope to meet the end with similar spirit, and assuredly, the end is not far. But Oates' sacrifice didn't matter in the end. They all died anyway. Their bodies, along with Scott's diary, were found in their tent by a search party the next November. A cairn of ice and snow was placed on top of them to mark the spot, and that's where their bodies remain to this day. Any effort to bring them home even today would be totally futile. The ice moves and accumulates over their graves each year, and it's estimated they're a little over 55 feet underneath the ice as of right now, and about 39 miles or 62 kilometers from where they originally died, and they're still traveling. According to Mental Floss, the polar record estimates that this particular chunk of ice shelf holding Scott and his companions will eventually break off into an iceberg that will travel around the Ross Sea and the Southern Ocean for about another 350 years. That's assuming we'll all still have that much ice by then. And this whole freaking story is riddled with tragic crap just like that. Like two ponies fell through the ice on that expedition and were eaten by orcas. Ponies, because someone thought it would be a good idea to bring freaking ponies, and it wasn't. All said, the Antarctic had been won, and not by Scott or Shackleton or Britain but Shackleton just couldn't let go of the South. He spent four subsequent years raising funds to go on yet another voyage. It would be his third to Antarctica. Like his father, he wasn't a rich man, and he relied on the connections he'd made and the donations of financial backers to fund his explorations. This is one of the areas where his charisma and persuasive characteristics came in handy. Gaining funding was not easy, but he pulled it off. This time, he wanted to be the first person to cross the continent of Antarctica in its entirety on foot. To him, this was the last great exploratory accomplishment to be made, the last great adventure, because the map of the world was being colored in. The uncharted places were all being filled with the heroics and accomplishments of others, and to a person with the desire for exploration on the level of Shackleton, that was an excruciating thing to watch happen. 
I almost wonder if he would have thought of himself as being born a couple of centuries too late. The world was closing in on him, and he wanted to push the boundaries of the unknown back out just for a little bit longer. After being told of Scott's fate, he immediately began making plans for his trans-Antarctic expedition. He wrote, quote, From the sentimental point of view, it is the last great polar journey that can be made. It will be a greater journey than the journey to the pole and back, and I feel it is up to the British nation to accomplish this, for we have been beaten at the conquest of the North Pole and beaten at the first conquest of the South Pole. There now remains the largest and most striking of all journeys, the crossing of the continent. Unquote. The adventure he would actually have would be nothing at all of what he had planned. It would be much more epic, and it would test him and those with him in ways no one could have predicted. But it would be a great adventure. The story of Shackleton's voyage on the ship, very appropriately named Endurance, was one I had never heard in school. Maybe that's on the American public education system, I don't know. But almost everyone I talked to when I was making this episode had never heard of him either. And that's almost as incredible as this story is, because this particular piece of history shows us what a human being can do when things become so impossible that it literally changes what you believe is possible. People know about Scott, and about Amundsen. So why do we not all know this story? It seems there are two main reasons. One, this all happened right at the start of World War I, and it ended before the war was over. So even in their own time, these adventurers became lost amidst the chaos of the war effort. And two, when Alfred Lansing wrote his book titled Endurance about the expedition, it was 1959, and no one cared about Antarctic or Arctic exploration anymore. Everyone was more interested in reading stories about space. As far as most of the world was concerned, the Antarctic had stopped being interesting after Amundsen planted his flag at the South Pole and Scott died trying to do the same thing. And that was it. That was the end of the map. And what do you do when the rest of the map is filled in? You look up at the sky, and you start filling in another blank one. I would probably never have heard this story either if I hadn't picked up Lansing's book on a whim. I was living in West Africa at the time as a Peace Corps volunteer and thought a book that had a picture of an ice-covered ship on the cover would help me forget how damn hot it was and help me pass the time. Because when you don't have TV to watch or an iPhone to play on, it's amazing how much time you have to kill. I read Lansing's book and it sparked a sense of wonder in me that I've had ever since. And I hope this podcast can spark the same kind of interest in you. Unless you're one of the lucky ones that already knew about it. Lansing's book, Endurance, is one of the primary sources I used in researching Shackleton, because Lansing used the actual diaries of the crew members, many of which still had blubber oil stains and were wrinkled from being waterlogged and dried out during the adventure. How cool is that? He also conducted hours of interviews with the crew members that were still alive in the 1950s. This allowed him to write a first-hand account of what had happened through the survivors, and much of what we know transpired may well have been lost to history without Lansing's interviews. The second major resource I used is a book actually written by Shackleton himself about the experience called South, which tells the tale of what happened through Shackleton's own pen and perspective. I think the most important part of Shackleton's own account are the things he left out of it. When you write your own history, you can be assured that it's a glowing one, full of exactly what you want others to know. 
Shackleton knew the world was going to judge him for what happened, because he was the leader of the expedition, and some of those things that happened were out of his control completely. But some weren't. He didn't get to decide when the pack ice froze, or in what direction they drifted, and how far with the currents and the wind, or when a blizzard would last for weeks. But he did get to decide things like when they left, what they brought, when they moved, and most importantly, what they left behind. And he did make some bad calls, which I'll discuss as we go. And he knew with all the frustrating futility hindsight so painfully offers, just what mistakes he made. But in his book, he sure doesn't dwell on them. He either leaves things out that the interviews and journals of the crew discuss in greater detail, or he passes over them quickly, then immediately begins distracting the reader with facts. He'll go on for long paragraphs, a page long, about things we don't need to know but make him sound capable and intelligent. Things like longitude and wind speed and direction and temperature and weather. Things that could confuse and or bore a reader enough to make them want to move on to the next section without dwelling too much on what was happening. Shackleton published his book in 1920, five years after the expedition, and it was the only mainstream published work about the adventure, at least that I could find, until Lansing published Endurance in 1959. It reads a bit thick and dry, but gets more readable towards the end. This might be because he gets into the flow of writing by then, or it could be because the first half is about the situation they were in, and there were things he didn't want to write about, and the second half was about his heroic open boat journey and trek over South Georgia, which was much easier to discuss because it showed some serious heroism. And writing about your own heroics is much easier than writing about the fact that you decided to leave food behind at some pretty crucial moments that backfired later or got too itchy to wait for better weather before leaving on the expedition. I am not qualified to psychologically profile another human being, especially one that lived a hundred years ago in a world very different from my own. I will leave that up to better academics than me. But Shackleton was fascinating, and it's hard not to try and pick apart the way his mind worked, especially when comparing his accounts with those of his crew and taking into consideration some of the things he chose to do and not do after the expedition. He failed massively, but almost in a way that made his failure into a success, and that's phenomenal. It takes some charisma to be able to pull that off. Antarctic explorer and geologist Sir Raymond Priestley was quoted as saying, quote, For scientific discovery, give me Scott. For speed and efficiency, give me Amundsen. But when disaster strikes and all hope is gone, get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton. Unquote. That's some pretty high praise for a guy that failed. Shackleton was a complicated man, and historical and modern accounts of him seem to either be glowing or scathing without much in between. He was egotistical, not a good husband, probably not a good father, he never wrote about his family or how he missed them, never even mentioned them, you wouldn't even know he was a father reading his book. He was always either away from home or wanting to be, he was hungry for glory and he would endanger his life and the lives of others to get it. But he was an outstanding leader when it was crucial for him to be, and calculating to the nth degree, and he was ready to invest everything, risk everything for his Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition. The original plan consisted of two separate parties and two separate ships. The first ship was the Endurance, carrying the Weddell Sea Party led by Shackleton. 
The Endurance was to head to the Weddell Sea on one side of the continent and set up a base camp in the Vashel Bay area. Here, 14 men, including Shackleton, would land and carry out the overland journey. Eight would stay at the shore carrying out scientific work, including geology, meteorology, and general biology. There was a lot to learn about Antarctica, and scientific exploration was far easier for Shackleton to sell than just the idea of an adventure alone. Six men, including Shackleton, were to then take a hundred dogs with sledges, two motor sledges and all their equipment on an 1800 mile, that's 2900 kilometer, journey across Antarctica until reaching the Ross Sea on the opposite side of the continent. Shackleton optimistically estimated the on-foot journey would take five months. His estimate was precisely 120 days. A second crew, called the Ross Sea Party, was to set up its base in McMurdo Sound on the other side of Antarctica. They were sailing on a ship called the Aurora. After landing, they were to lay supply caches at a series of depots headed toward the South Pole, then meet Shackleton when they were about two-thirds of the way over the continent. They would then join up together and walk back to McMurdo Sound. This would ease the burden of the Weddell Sea Party, since they would have less supplies to carry and would know they had food stores waiting for them two-thirds of the way through their journey. This was all great on paper, and Shackleton was extremely confident in his plan, even though it was being called too audacious by many critics at the time. But audacity was what Shackleton was interested in. If something wasn't dangerous and glorifying, he generally wanted nothing to do with it. But the whole thing was doomed from both sides. You already know the Endurance wouldn't make it, it wouldn't even hit land. But the Aurora, the ship carrying the Ross Sea Party and the extra supplies, was doomed too. The journey of the Aurora could be its own entire episode, and its story is arguably even more tragic than that of the Endurance. This was 1914, and the crew of the Aurora had no way of knowing the Endurance hadn't made it successfully to the other side of Antarctica because there was no way to communicate with Shackleton. So they would keep on their journey believing the others were on track and depending upon them. This means that all of the tragedy its crew would face would be for absolutely nothing. Unlike the Endurance, the Aurora would make its destination landing. This was at McMurdo Sound in January 1915. They were anxious to begin landing the supply depots every 60 miles until hitting the Beardmore Glacier, and they had to get there in time to meet Shackleton's half of the expedition. They were led by Anias Lionel Action McIntosh. You can probably already tell just from that amazing name that his life was pretty epic. He was a former British Merchant Navy officer and a seasoned Antarctic explorer, he was second officer on Shackleton's Nimrod journey, where he lost an eye to an onboard accident when a hook swung across the deck and smacked him right in the face. It was a standing in the wrong place at the wrong time kind of a thing. The accident turned him into an actual one-eyed sea captain. How's that for imagery? He wasn't even supposed to be captain. Two men had turned down the position before McIntosh agreed to do it and you'll get a pretty clear idea of why. His leadership skills have been questioned by polar historians ever since this expedition. Shackleton criticized McIntosh's organizational skills, but also failed to mention he gave McIntosh only half the money he had originally promised for supplies before the journey. It was up to McIntosh to somehow secure the other half by trying to mortgage the ship. 
but turns out the purchase of the Aurora hadn't legally been completed yet, so that plan failed pretty quickly. The Aurora was apparently also not fit for Antarctic exposure, and a massive rehaul had to be done before she could make the journey. All of these last-minute surprises from Shackleton caused Macintosh some pretty understandable anxiety, and at this point, some of the appointed crew members resigned. It was obvious Shackleton hadn't planned financially for the Ross Sea Party side of the expedition, and seeing their Captain Macintosh having to scramble around the last minute before a perilous journey caused them to have some pretty apt foreboding premonitions. Although Macintosh and a few others on the Aurora definitely had experience with prior Antarctic expeditions, after the resignations, much of the crew would now be composed of inexperienced men. On top of all of this, Shackleton's instructions were confusing, and remember, this was at a time when Macintosh couldn't just send an email to ask for clarification. Shackleton's orders were often contradictory. He would tell Macintosh that the supply depots were an absolute necessity for the survival of his party and the success of the expedition on one occasion, then on another, he would leave Macintosh to believe that he would be bringing enough supplies across the continent on his own to suffice if all the depots were not laid on time. In this haphazard way, the Ross Sea Party left on Christmas Day, 1914. When they reached their destination of McMurdo Sound, Macintosh wanted to begin laying the depots immediately, as he believed Shackleton could already be on his way with his crew. Getting going so quickly meant that the unseasoned crew would have no time to acclimate to Antarctic conditions or receive any sort of training to help prepare them for life at the bottom of the world. As you can imagine, that backfired pretty hard. Eighteen men stayed at their base in McMurdo Sound with the ship. This base was called Cape Evans, which was an old base originally set up by Scott. The headquarters building is actually still standing today and has been renamed Scott's Hut. In late January, ten men, including Macintosh, then set out to begin laying the supply depots. They took a motor sledge, which broke pretty much right away. The thing only went a few miles. The physical labor was exhausting. The snow was soft and made moving the sledges with the supplies absolutely torturous. To alleviate this, they began relaying their supplies in partial loads. This made the sledges lighter, but meant they had to travel four miles for every one mile of covered ground. They began traveling only at night when the temperatures were lower because the soft snow was so troublesome it just may as well have been sand. When they were out on the pack ice, they got lost and had to dump some of the supplies they brought with them to reduce their loads. The inexperienced men suffered from frostbite and snow blindness. Their rations were dwindling and the dogs they were using to help pull the sledges were as inexperienced as most of the crew. They hadn't been trained or acclimatized either and were pushed way too hard and way too far. Things are about to get sad because I'm gonna tell you now what happened to the dogs. So if you had a hard time reading where the red fern grows, skip ahead about three minutes or so. The dogs were hungry and exhausted. Out of total desperation, they started eating the leather harnesses they were being kept in. February 4th, Macintosh wrote in his journal, quote, The dogs are feeling the pangs of hunger and devouring everything they see. They will eat anything except rope. Unquote. Despite this, the dog's rations were not increased, and each animal was being given about a pound of food a day. Today, it's understood that active sled dogs need anywhere from 7,000 to 10,000 calories each per day. 
For example, during the Iditarod, a 1,000-mile race retracing a historic supply and mail route in the Alaskan frontier, a team of 12 to 16 dogs will need 2,000 pounds of food for the 8 to 15 days it takes to complete the race. At the rate they were going and the demand they were placing on the dogs, McIntosh and his crew, whether they understood it or not, were starving their dogs to death with hunger and exhaustion. They simply couldn't perform the physical grueling tasks being demanded of them, and one by one, they died in the snow. All but one, a husky mix named Pinky. After all the other dogs had died, they began giving Pinky all the food he wanted. He had lived until now, probably because he wasn't one of the pulling dogs. At this point, the crew was determined to have their last dog survive before making it back to the Aurora. But the pace was fast, and the weather was colder now. At the beginning of March, it was recorded as negative 28 degrees Fahrenheit. That's a little over minus 33 Celsius. The sun sank down past the horizon for the first time, signaling the beginning of the Antarctic winter, and Pinky finally collapsed from exhaustion. He was left behind. Damn it, I hate all of these polar exploration stories because they all have tragic dog endings. If it makes you feel any better, there was still a few dogs back at the ship, and three of them would actually make it out alive. Some of the crew that survived said the only reason they did was because of the friendships they had made with the dogs. So, there you go. The human crew wasn't doing much better at this point either. It was now negative 92 degrees Fahrenheit, or about negative 69 degrees Celsius. Everyone had frostbite. One man's was so severe he would later lose a toe and part of his ear. They were all down to one meal of rations a day, and this is something I don't quite understand, because they were sledging thousands of pounds of food to lay at the depots, and I know they were leaving it as they went, and some of it they had to leave behind unexpectedly at unscheduled depots because they just couldn't carry it. But not using at least some of it to feed your own crew and your dogs as they're getting caught in blizzards over a period of months in one of the most severe environments on Earth seems like a clear oversight. Then again, I have hindsight working for me, and Macintosh couldn't have known the journey was going to be so long and so treacherous. Still, it seems like this was a situation in which you would want to prepare for the worst. The diaries of the crew say mixed things. Joyce, second in command and just as experienced as Macintosh, was writing about being frustrated at the choices Macintosh was making. Joyce had argued with him that the dogs and the crew were both too inexperienced and needed training before they left to start laying the depots, but Macintosh wouldn't listen. Now the dogs they had brought on this first sledging journey were all dead, they were starving, and every single one of them was crippled with frostbite. The diaries we have of the more inexperienced men aren't so critical, though their naivete on how an expedition should or could be run probably contributed to that. As far as they knew, this is just what happened when you risked your life at the bottom of the world. They finally hobbled their way to a place called Hut Point, but were stranded there for three months because the weather and the dangerous state of the pack ice made it impossible for them to make it back to the ship. In June, five months after they had left to lay the first depots, they finally reached McMurdo Sound, having laid half of the depots for Shackleton. Only to discover their ship was gone. The Aurora had been caught in a particularly vicious winter storm and had been ripped from the two anchors and seven cables holding her to the land and blown out to sea. 
This had happened before, but this time the pack ice had frozen around the ship, making a return journey to land impossible. The ship with 18 crew members on board would drift with the pack ice for 700 miles, over 1,100 kilometers, before finding open sea in the north. Those stuck on board had plenty of rations, as all of the stores hadn't yet been put ashore. Their chief concerns were to, one, not get crushed in the pack ice, and two, having to wait for an opening in the ice that allowed them to navigate back to land where the remaining ten crew members were now stranded. Those on board were doing everything they could, even contemplating putting a sledge on the pack ice with stores and hauling it on foot over the frozen sea back to land. The opportunity for this never arrived, and the men frozen on the sea would drift and drift and drift until they were finally released from the ice in April of 1916. They would drift trapped on the ice for over 10 months. By that time, the Aurora was damaged and leaking and barely made it into a port in New Zealand with a makeshift rudder. All the while, the 10 men stranded at McMurdo Station were staying busy and still planning on finishing their job of laying depots for Shackleton. Unbeknownst to them, Shackleton was trapped himself with his own crew on the other side of the continent at the same time, and they were laying depots for an overland party that would never arrive. Though Shackleton's crew would fail to complete their transcontinental crossing, not even getting as far as setting a foot on the continent, the members of the Ross Sea Party were successful in their half of the venture. And to this day, those depots they left for Shackleton are still there, untouched, beneath the ice and the snow. McIntosh would receive a lot of criticism for the decisions he made, but he would never get the chance to defend himself, because the expedition would kill him. Three of the ten left at McMurdo Station would die. They had 4,000 pounds of supplies and took them on another journey all the way to the furthest depot by the Beardmore Glacier, an epic undertaking that would take 118 days just to get to the glacier. That was one way. On the way there, Arnold Patrick Spencer Smith, their chaplain, was suffering from a particularly terrible case of scurvy and frostbite. They left him in his tent, carrying on without him, and when they returned after having laid the depot, they found him in an even weaker state. His legs had completely turned black all the way to his hips. He couldn't walk, so he had to be carried on a sledge where he died in March and was buried by his comrades in the snow. Scurvy is the result of severe vitamin C deficiency. It can cause excruciating pain in the limbs and bones, especially in the legs, spontaneous bleeding, depression, exhaustion, swelling, anemia, ulcers on the gums, and tooth loss. The loss of vitamin C in the diet makes the proper formulation of collagen in the body impossible, destroying the structure of the body's connective tissue. Unable to create neurotransmitters like dopamine and epinephrine, the victim over time doesn't just suffer from severe physical pain, but mental agony as well. It is a terrible way to die. On the journey to the glacier, four of the nine survivors had turned back early and had made it back to Cape Evans where they were recovering. The rest, including McIntosh, had made it back to Hut Point where they were subsisting on seal mate and what rations they had left. It would be another four months before it would be safe for the rest of them to cross the ice back to Cape Evans and meet up with the others. On the way to Hut Point, McIntosh was in an incredibly weakened state. 
They were subsisting on dog food, eight lumps of sugar a day, and half a biscuit. They all would have died if Joyce hadn't gone with two others to retrieve rations that they had left at a depot ten miles away. When Joyce returned to McIntosh with the other two men, McIntosh had to be hauled on a sledge the rest of the way to Hut Point. He begged the others to leave him to die, and when they refused, he managed to roll off the sledge twice into the snow, hoping he would just die there unnoticed. The others had to go back and retrieve him both times. With his strength returned to him, after the increase in rations and the meat from the seals they had managed to kill, McIntosh was determined to march the rest of the way to Cape Evans. He had been stranded for months at the hut before and didn't want to go through that again. The conditions were appallingly spartan, and although their hut was sufficient for survival, Cape Evans was much better equipped and comfortable. Another man, Hayward, agreed to accompany him. McIntosh was anxious that the Aurora would return only to leave them, thinking they had perished on their journey. Against the pleas from Joyce and the others to wait the season out at the hut, McIntosh and Hayward left for Cape Evans, carrying only light supplies. And that was the last time anyone would ever see them alive. As soon as they left, another terrible blizzard hit that lasted for two full days. The tracks of the two men were still clear in the ice afterwards, and Joyce and the others followed them out to the pack ice, where they suddenly disappeared. It was like they had just vanished. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. But it wasn't aliens. Either the two had fallen through the ice during the storm, which was a fairly common occurrence even in good weather, or had been swept out to sea on an ice floe with the wind. Either way, they were gone. After the season permitted, Joyce and the others made it back to Cape Evans where they met up with the other survivors. The seven left alive would have to wait until January 10th, 1917 for rescue. They had left home on Christmas Day in 1914. By then, the Aurora had been repaired, and Shackleton himself came to rescue those left at McMurdo Sound. Shackleton's adventure had already been over for months after the Aurora landed in New Zealand after having been blown out to sea. McIntosh and the others were laying depots in vain, dying and suffering for nothing. It's odd to think about how different the two parties in this story were. Shackleton and his crew failed in their aim, but their story, as you'll see, is one of success through failure. McIntosh and his crew succeeded in doing exactly what they had set out to do, but their story is one of failure despite success. Though I'm focusing on Shackleton and the crew of the Endurance for the rest of this series, it would have been a disservice not to tell you of the Aurora's fate first. Now, after that depressing epic, let's move on to the other side of the expedition. It's also depressing, but inspiring in a way that depressing things can be inspiring. Here we go. To recruit a crew that would be willing to sail away from home for over a year, and that's if things went well, while risking their lives in well below freezing temperatures, it's said that Shackleton ran this ad in the papers. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, Honor and recognition in event of success. That would definitely be an attention grabber. A bit sexist, although three women still applied. It's said that Shackleton received over 5,000 applicants. 
Given his love of adventurous whimsy, it does seem like something Shackleton would have done. But the ad is probably apocryphal. The Antarctic Circle, a non-commercial forum for polar history sources, has offered $100 as a reward for anyone who can find an actual copy of the ad. So far, the reward has gone unclaimed. I hope that was the actual ad, since I also enjoy adventurous whimsy. But it probably never happened. On a side note, there really was an ad in the local paper that had something along those same lines when I was an undergrad, and I immediately called. Turned out it was just an ad for kung fu lessons. I was eating a lot of ramen at the time, so I didn't have the funds for any kung foolery on the side. Alas. Shackleton never mentioned the ad, or what hiring process he used in his book. We do know that the expedition was already underfunded, and Lansing tells us that the pay offered to the crew, even the scientists, was next to nothing. Apparently, Shackleton felt that the, quote, privilege of being taken along was itself almost compensation enough, especially for the scientists for whom the undertaking offered an unmatched opportunity for field research in their fields, unquote. I think a lot of field researchers still run into that same problem today. By the way, some of the crew would never get paid, which seems like a huge dick move. Shackleton seems like he'd be the kind of friend that asks you to go out to dinner, so you do, and he orders an appetizer, a bottle of wine, and a steak, and you only order salad and a glass of water, but at the end of the meal, he tells the waiter you'll both just split the bill down the middle, and you're only 51% sure you want to still be friends with the guy, but you put up with all his crap because he's fun. I admire Shackleton's tenacity, and spirit of adventure, and even his leadership skills, but he did seem to show a pattern of using those around him to further his own interests. He was a get-rich-quick-and-famous kind of a guy, but despite that, he managed to hold the respect and loyalty of those around him, even in the worst of times. Professor of Business Psychology at University College London and Columbia University, Thomas Chamorro Premusic, I know I said that wrong, explains in his book titled, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It? Harsh title, I know, but hear him out. He says that often, one of the reasons we see so many people with big egos and little competency skills in leadership roles is because we tend to value confidence for competence sake alone as reason enough to give someone an authoritative role. Often, people who are overconfident or even narcissistic seem very charismatic and are great at charming those around them into believing they should be holding a position of power, and we tend to believe them, even if the results we get from their leadership isn't what it could be, or is even damaging. Chamorro Premusic explains that people with humbler personas and better leadership qualities who would be much more effective in authoritative roles are often overlooked because they don't come off as aggressively or as confident, and historically, and contemporarily, we have been prone to sacrificing effective leadership for people, specifically men, with overconfident personalities and lacking in the competency department. Maybe Shackleton, with his extreme persona of confidence and optimistic outlook for his own capabilities, was able to raise the funds he did and convince so many others that the expedition would be a success, not because he was good at following through on whatever he set out to do, because we know now that he failed, but because the overconfidence he had in himself was so infectious to those around him that it inspired an admiration we have come to explain as good leadership today. 
I know it might sound like I'm being overly critical of Shackleton, and I'm not trying over a hundred years later to try and paint a bad picture of him, because that's not my intention. I'm just trying to reconcile the man history remembers, the glorious leader who oversaw one of the most epic human survival stories of all time, with some of the things that he did and said. I've read through his book, and other people's books, and articles, and papers written about him, and it's hard not to be totally fascinated with how this man changed his failure into a huge success story in the eyes of history. It takes some sort of manipulation to do that, but intelligence too. And although he does seem to have some egoic driven tendencies, he was so calculating and so good at reading others that his leadership does deserve some genuine praise. We can see how perceptive he was at evaluating the personalities of others just by examining the crew members who he placed in authoritative roles on the Endurance. Some of the crew that went with him were the people he trusted and knew from previous expeditions, most notably Frank Wilde, his second in command. Wilde had journeyed with Shackleton on the race to the Pole in 1908-09, and he was the perfect choice. He was loyal, calm, calculated, and was always able to keep his cool. This was an excellent balance to Shackleton's spontaneous and sometimes explosive personality. Shackleton really liked Wilde, and placing him as his second-in-command was an intelligent move and would later prove to be imperative. Third-in-command was Thomas Crean. He had traveled with Shackleton on the second expedition of 1901. He was an Irishman that had served for many years in the Royal Navy, and the discipline and sense of loyalty he learned there carried over to the way he did everything. He was quiet-natured as well. Shackleton seemed to choose fellow adventurers who he knew not only had experience on previous Antarctic expeditions, but who would stay loyal and not question his authority, and who had dispositions that would help quiet the potential brawly nature of less experienced, younger adventurers. And Shackleton knew just how bad things could get down there, and he seemed very good at understanding group dynamics. Giving authority to well-mannered, mature, and loyal crew members would prove to be a good decision, and if Shackleton's intent was to have these men be a counterbalance to his less seasoned crew members, then he was spot on in putting them exactly where they needed to be in the hierarchy. Shackleton also chose another Antarctic veteran as his third officer. This was Alfred Cheatham, another unassuming personality, and he had already been on three expeditions prior to this one. Next was George Marston, a 32-year-old artist who had done some good work on one of Shackleton's previous expeditions. Thomas McLeod, who had been on the same previous journey as Marston, was signed on as a lead seaman. No matter how many times I say that word, it makes me feel like simultaneously giggling and cringing. Shackleton obviously put a lot of thought and foresight into selecting these men specifically for the endurance. But when it came to the rest of the crew, he was so seemingly nonchalant and spontaneous about who he hired that it's a miracle things worked out even before they reached the Weddell Sea. There's no record of him ever even conducting an official interview for anyone else. He literally just hired the others based on if he liked the look of them or not. He was either prophetic at reading other people the second he met them, or so confident in his experienced crew and himself that he didn't think anyone else mattered that much. He needed a meteorologist to satisfy the donors and chose a guy named Leonard Hussey simply because he, quote, looked funny. 
It doesn't seem Shackleton was at all interested in crossing the Antarctic on foot for scientific purposes. He was doing it because he wanted Britain to have some place in the exploration of the continent, and he was doing it so he could have a place in it too. Financial backers were less inclined to fund an already underfunded expedition to stroke someone's ego, but they were interested in an expedition that could bring back important scientific knowledge. He hired two physicians, and both would be invaluable. The first, Dr. Alexander Martin, was hired because he cleverly responded when Shackleton inquired why he was wearing reading glasses, reportedly saying, quote, many a wise face would look foolish without spectacles. And that literally got him the job. The second physician, Reginald James, was hired because he could sing, had relatively okay teeth, and didn't suffer from varicose veins. And that was it. That's how he chose the rest of the crew. And you know what? It was a great crew. There would be some dissension, and one guy in particular that would get on the nerves of the others, but that seems completely understandable. They had no way of knowing it, but these guys were going to be sharing every little space and moment of privacy, literally huddled up around each other for warmth at times, for the next two years in totally unfamiliar and painful circumstances, and sometimes in months of total darkness. That's bound to elicit some serious emotions sometimes. I didn't even like it in college when my roommates drank my milk out of the fridge. But reading these accounts, it becomes apparent that the way these men got along together, helped each other, and most importantly, kept an overall sense of humor with one another, would be their saving grace. And if Shackleton planned that, he was a genius of social dynamics. In August of 1914, King George V presented Shackleton with the Union Jack to take on his journey, and on that same day, Britain declared war on Germany. The start of World War I, right as he was about to leave, was a devastating predicament for Shackleton. He had no way of knowing how much of the world he knew would eventually be consumed by this war, but he felt like he and his crew had an obligation to serve their country. The planning and funding for his expedition had taken four frustrating years, and he had already spent all the money he had raised, and any profits to be made were contingent upon him returning from the expedition. If he didn't go, he would be in extreme debt, and undoubtedly would never be able to raise funds again for a second expedition, as no financial backer would invest in someone who didn't deliver the first time. But he couldn't just go without offering to stay and fight. Shackleton really did seem to be a patriot. He was born in Ireland, but was of English descent. He would often say he was a proud Irishman, but he was against Irish home rule, and in 1914, Ireland was not yet independent from England, so it was still considered, by the English anyway, to be a part of Britain. And Shackleton loved being British. And even if he hadn't, there was no way he wouldn't lose some serious face for packing up and going on an adventure right when everyone else, especially those with military experience like Shackleton and much of his crew, were enlisting, re-enlisting, and preparing for war. Shackleton spent some long contemplative hours mulling over what to do. He discussed it with his financial backers, advisors, and the rest of his crew, and finally decided that, with his crew's blessing, which they gave, that he would telegraph the Admiralty and place the entire expedition at the disposal of the government. They waited in what had to have been anxious anticipation while the Admiralty decided their fate. In about an hour, the laconic reply came as one word. It simply said, 
proceed. About two hours after that, Winston Churchill sent his own telegraph to Shackleton and his crew, thanking him for the offer to stay and fight, but insisting the authorities wished the expedition, which had been sanctioned by the scientific and geographical societies, go on. I wonder if, had Churchill known just then how desperate and huge this war would end up becoming, if he would have just had the expedition cancelled outright. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, well over 900,000 British soldiers would be killed in the First World War, with almost 200,000 being listed as prisoners of war or missing. But there was no way of knowing any of that the day the war began. So five days later, the crew of the Endurance set sail from Plymouth for Buenos Aires. For a good number of the crew, this was their first time on the sea, but apart from some ferocious seasickness-induced vomiting, the voyage went perfectly. The Endurance was a barkentine, which meant it had three masts and measured 144 feet. It was powered by coal and could go as fast as 10.2 knots, which is not quite 12 miles an hour. Slow, but not bad for the day. The keel was solid oak, seven feet thick, and this was important as they would be sailing through pack ice and being able to navigate through it was key to their success. For this same reason, the planking was covered in a wood called Greenheart, which was heavier than iron and so tough it couldn't be worked with normal tools. This ship was built with a lot of foresight and a lot of love. The shipwrights chose each plank individually and, being superstitious, they placed a copper coin under each mast as it was erected. Speaking of superstition, the Endurance had originally been named the Polaris after the North Star. Shackleton changed the ship's name to the Endurance after his family's motto, By Endurance We Conquer. I'm not a sailor, but even I know that changing the name of the ship was said to be disastrously bad luck. But luck already seemed to be on their side, as this was said to be the strongest ship ever built in Norway, second only to Amundsen's own ship that had taken him on his successful journey to the Pole. But there was one important difference. Amundsen's ship, the Fram, had been built bowl-bottomed, which meant that when the pack ice became dangerous and closed in, the ship would be squeezed up out of it and away from the pressure. Shackleton's ship was wall-sided, like most ships of that kind in the day, so it wasn't able to be relieved from the pressure of the pack ice the same way. But no one thought the Endurance was going to be encountering anything but loose pack ice. This would be a fatal assumption for the ship. But she sailed well on her two-month journey to Buenos Aires. Shackleton and Wilde stayed behind in England to wrap things up and met the rest of the crew in Argentina by way of a much faster commercial liner. For the two-month journey, Worsley, a 42-year-old New Zealander, was captain. Worsley told a possibly apocryphal tale about how he came to the expedition. He said that one night, he had a dream, while he was staying at a hotel in London, that Burlington Street was filled with huge blocks of ice, which he was navigating through on a ship. He claimed that first thing the next morning, he headed straight to Burlington Street, where he just happened to spot a nameplate on a door that read, Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition. He said he opened the door, and there was Shackleton. After a quick conversation, he was not only hired, but was put in charge of the physical running of the ship for the entire expedition. The two supposedly then shook hands, and Shackleton told him, You're engaged. Join your ship until I wire for you. I'll let you know all the details as soon as possible. Good morning. And that was it. 
There's no way to prove this happened. I couldn't find anywhere that Shackleton had ever written about the meeting. But we've seen that Shackleton was a fan of romantic whimsy, although when it came to assigning positions of authority, he had seemed to be a bit more calculating. So I can't prove this actually happened, but I can't prove it didn't either. By the time Shackleton and Wilde made it to Argentina, apparently Worsley's lack of discipline had let the expedition slip into a fairly unruly state. The cook was found drunk and was fired, as were two other members of the crew who had started a fight with one of the other men after a particularly, quote, stormy night ashore. The cook was replaced with a guy named Green, who took his job seriously and was described as conscientious to the point of single-mindedness. The guy was serious about cooking. It was decided that only one new hire would replace the two men that had been fired. This spot went to a 26-year-old Canadian named Bakewell. Bakewell had been traveling with a younger man of 18 named Blackborough, who was hired temporarily as an aide to the cook, but was considered too young and too inexperienced to be a part of this expedition. But what do you do when you're 18, super far from home, unemployed, and have nowhere to go since your one friend just got hired for a trans-Antarctic expedition at the last second? You become a stowaway. And on October 26th, 1914, when the Endurance finally set sail for her greatest and last adventure, the 27-man crew was secretly 28. Although no one would know about the 18-year-old kid hiding behind a pile of oil skins in his buddy's locker until three days later. When they were out to sea too far to turn back, Blackborough finally showed himself. Shackleton didn't seem to fly into a rage often, but when he did, it seems like it was on the same level as a mad Targaryen. And if you don't get that Game of Thrones reference, just imagine a terrifyingly imposing figure who could control dragons, easily have people killed, and couldn't be burned by fire. Blackborough was terrified, but there was nothing Shackleton could do besides turn the ship around and take the scared Welshman back to Argentina, and he wasn't about to do that since he had to beat the pack ice to the continent and every moment was precious. So after exploding for a while, Shackleton paused, put his face directly level with Blackborough's, like, I can smell the bangers and mash you just ate close, and said, quote, Finally, if we run out of food and anyone has to be eaten, you will be first. Do you understand? The speechless Blackborough smiled just a little bit in a charming Welsh sort of way and nodded his head. He had no idea how close it would get to that threat having to be employed. Had no idea that he was on a ship taking him to an icy version of hell and hopelessness. They reached a whaling station at South Georgia on November 5th and were immediately dismayed to hear that the pack ice of the Weddell Sea was worse than anyone had ever seen it. Although Shackleton waited until December 5th, he wouldn't listen to the suggestion of the whalers to wait until the next season to launch the expedition. If he had, the story would have turned out very differently. But he was anxious to get going, and he wanted to make history. He had spent four years trying to get where he was, and he wasn't going to wait one more just on the word of a few whalers. They only waited until the morning of the 5th, because they were hoping the supply ship they knew was heading for the whaling station would arrive before then, bringing the crew members some much-desired letters from their loved ones at home. 
Sadly, only two hours after they set sail, the supply ship arrived with the letters from home the men would never get the chance to read. They were already sailing for the Weddell Sea. The Weddell Sea is roughly circular, and much of the ice formed there can't escape into the broader ocean where it would eventually melt. New ice could form there all year, even in the summer. Currents and wind and continuously forming ice flows peppered with glaciers made it a particularly hazardous place to be, especially on a ship. Ice flows can collide with one another with extreme force that sometimes can even cause them to rise violently right out of the water. The currents push the ice to the Palmer Peninsula in a crushing mass that is unnavigable, except only at its best, and that was often impossible to predict. Having to sail through the ice meant having to constantly have someone on watch to look out for closing pathways that could crush a ship and for new possible pathways through the ice that would be safer to navigate through. It was summer, so there was light 24 hours a day, the sun dipping down below the horizon for only four hours, leaving the whole world in an eerie, magnificent twilight that never quite went dark. Ice showers caused by the moisture accumulating in the air would flicker down, millions at a time, freezing and settling on everything in sight. For such an unforgiving place, the Weddell Sea sounds like it holds a beauty only few by then could have known. And it wasn't desolate in the summer. Although the Weddell Sea is home to one of the most severe environments on Earth, humpback, fin, and blue whales were there, and the crew would see them as they came up for air in the holes between the pack ice. Emperor and Adelie penguins were everywhere. The Weddell has an abundant stock of krill, and where there's krill, everything else seems to follow. Seals, killer whales, and although the crew might not have spotted them, or maybe just didn't know they did, there were also right whales, sperm whales, minke whales, and sai whales. In winter, however, life would seem to abandon the Weddell Sea in stark contrast to the vibrant atmosphere the crew was seeing in December. On Christmas Day, they feasted on hare, herring, plum pudding, and sweets they washed down with rum. Greenstreet recorded in his journal that night, quote, Here endeth another Christmas day. I wonder how and under what circumstances our next one will be spent. Temperature 30 degrees. The next one was going to be starkly different. New Year's Day, 1915, brought with it even more troubling ice, which had so far been nothing but worrisome. Shackleton wrote of flows that were a mile long and wide and larger than he had ever seen before. Then, on January 9th, they passed a 150-foot berg, twice as high as the highest point of the tallest mast on the ship. That's five brontosauruses. It must have been a humbling experience. They passed so closely that deep down into the indigo water they could see it descending, becoming bluer and bluer, at least another 40 feet. When they passed it, they finally saw the dark, undulating waves of open ocean. They had made it through over a month of navigating pack ice and finally saw a clear path for the first time. It stayed clear for a hundred miles. Then they saw more flows sandwiched between larger icebergs. They couldn't pass until a gale that lasted for three days while the ship was huddled under a large berg blew much of the pack ice away. Seeing their chance at a small opening, they headed into the thinned ice. Ten miles in, they realized this was a type of ice they had never encountered before. The flows were thick, but they were wet and mostly made of snow. This made the sea mushy with snowy ice, and it closed in around them on all sides. 
They were surrounded and could do nothing but wait for an opening in the ice. Finally, on January 24th, a huge crack opened before them in the ice, and their plan was to push through it to open water with everything they had. A full head of steam was raised, the sails were all set, and the engines were put at full speed. They pushed for three full hours, and the ship didn't move. The storekeeper, Ordelise, wrote in his journal that the ship was, quote, frozen like an almond in the middle of a chocolate bar. The gale they had experienced had pushed all the ice up against the land hundreds of miles away, and when the wet ice had surrounded them and frozen, it had captured them, setting them in a frozen mess of ice with no way out. At that same time, the crew of the Aurora was laying the first load of stores at the opposite end of the continent. Days passed, and on January 31st, their situation dire, they tried to radio for help. But in 1914, radio was still in its beginning stages, and they would only be able to receive spark transmissions of Morse code. They tried. They tried hard, but all they heard was static. Even when they attempted attaching an extra 180 feet of wire to the antenna, no one could hear their message. They were alone. They tried exiting the ship, setting foot on the frozen sea and chopping at the ice for days with picks and axes to try and free it from the ice. All attempts would be futile. Finally, Shackleton gave the order that they were going to winter on the ship. It was obvious there was no way they could remove themselves from the ice, so they would drift, stuck fast in the ice floes until winter was over. I wonder if at this point Shackleton had wished he had taken the advice of the whalers and waited until the next season to sail. If he did, he didn't mention it in his written account. The news was almost a relief to the crew that had spent long days hacking at the unbudgingly strong ice. They had food stores, could leave the ship and venture out onto the ice even by day, and wholeheartedly believed there would be an opening in the spring. One that would set their ship free. One that would never come. The Endurance had sailed as far as she ever would and they were embarking on one of the most epic trials of human endurance the world has ever known. They just didn't know it yet. That is where we're ending part one of Shackleton's voyage. There will be at least two more parts to this series. So much happened to these men, and it's impossible for me to do the story justice in just one episode, even two, especially since I want to give you guys all the gritty details. Part two and three will be even more exciting, so stay tuned. In the meantime, if you want to reach me, you can at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find the show on Twitter and Instagram, now that I've figured out how to do that. If you'd like to donate to the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. And if you can, please do, because I'm almost out of coffee. And if you can't donate, but you still want to help the show, just leave a review or subscribe where you listen to podcasts so more people can find the show. It will warm the toaster oven of my little nerdy heart. And thank you so much for listening and for giving me and this show a chance. I've been your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and until we meet again, dear wandering superstar of time and legend, go make some history. Yeah.